This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, what's the first thing you would do? Get outside more? Check in on that friend you've been meaning to catch up with? Maybe learn how to play an instrument? I know I've thought about what I would do with more time in my day, and many people daydream about what they might do in that scenario. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your actual schedule is to know what's important to you and take whatever reasonable steps you can to make those things more of a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who've experienced major traumas. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a quick questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash FilmDaily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Friday, July 21st, 2023. On today's episode of the show, I'm going to be joined by multiple people to have spoiler-filled conversations about two of our most anticipated films of 2023, Barbie and Oppenheimer. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com. And before we dive in, I just want to say at the top, we're giving away five Blu-ray copies of Scream 6. This contest is only valid for U.S. residents, and our partners on the giveaway asked us to read the following message on the show. So here goes. Bring home Scream 6 on 4K UHD disc now. Ghostface is back and more terrifying than ever on a rampage in the Big Apple. Marissa Barrera, Jenna Ortega, and Courtney Cox star in the sensational slasher hit Scream 6, directed by Matt Bettinelli, Olpen, and Tyler Gillett. Get over an hour of killer bonus features when you buy four on 4K UHD disc. Available at participating retailers rated R from Paramount Pictures. To win this contest, all you have to do is follow us on Twitter and retweet the tweet that has the giveaway information in it, which I will link to in the show notes. You can find that right there. Okay, with all of that out of the way, uh, I'm joined. Sounds like a good contest. Easy thing to do if people want to win and watch a good movie. So uh, I like to win things. You should too. (laughs) I, th- I think you're probably not allowed to do this, Chris. I'm, no, t- I'm talking to the audience. The audience can win <laughs> things, and I'll I'll root for them. Okay, that voice you're hearing is that of a slash film editor and uh, chief film critic, Chris Evangelista, who is joining me for the first part of this uh, podcast. Welcome, Chris. How are you? All right. How are you? 
I'm good. And and I'm actually energized because I want to talk to you about what is certainly one of the best movies of 2023 so far, and that is Oppenheimer. So uh, you said as much in your review. You in the, in the headline of this review, it says it's one of the best movies of the year. So I wanted to uh, kick things off by asking about your general thoughts on this movie. Man, this uh, and I'm not. I don't mean to do this in like a stupid punny way, but this movie really like blew me away, like from start to finish. It's it, it's almost like it shouldn't work as well as it does because it, when you when you boil it down to the bare minimum, this is literally just a movie about people in rooms having uh, spirited conversations, and mm-hmm. you know, you know, eventually they they have the bomb test, and that's a big, I guess you could call it an action sequence. But other than that. This is really just people in rooms talking and it's so thrilling and exciting and you sort of just get wrapped up in these conversations. And I think a part of that is there's something rewarding about watching smart people talk and and like not behave like idiots. <laughs> there's something like really uh, energizing and uh, just fascinating to watch people who are really good at what they do work out problems. It's, it's sort of like a heist movie where the heist people all come, you know, the, 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 the team comes together and they hash out how they're going to do the heist. And it almost feels like that in this where Oppenheimer is assembling a team of scientists and they're all going to figure out how to, how to make the bomb work. And then it shifts and becomes, uh, almost like a, a mini horror movie where Oppenheimer is, is, uh, you know, understandably perturbed by his, by, uh, atomic weapons and his contribution to creating the atomic bomb and he's haunted and he wants America to slow down and not, uh, go crazy about, uh, uh, you know, the, these, these new advances. Escalation kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, obviously the government is like, no, Hoppenheimer, sit your ass down. We're going to do what we want. And, uh, just, just, just the way it's, it's sort of, moves from this exciting like oh we're gonna build the bomb to uh oh we shouldn't have built the bomb it's kind of like two movies in once which i just thought was uh just fascinating and i particularly love the performances i don't want to go into too much stuff right now because we're going to talk about it but the performances are just so good and uh killian murphy is is phenomenal here and he does a lot of acting with his eyes and mm-hmm. he, he has the uh if you read about the real Oppenheimer, if you even look at pictures of the real Oppenheimer, he had these very big blue eyes and so does Killian Murphy. And I think I'm pretty sure he's like bugging his eyes out even more throughout the movie to make them bigger. And he just looks so like tormented and uh, haunted, even from the, like just from the start when we first meet him. And Mm -hmm. it's almost like he's always, you can almost always see him working problems out behind his eyes. Like he's always like trying to figure something out and, uh, Nolan does a lot of close-ups on on Killian Murphy's face, so we're like always like gazing into his face and his eyes and watching him work these problems out, and mm-hmm. and it's just uh, just from start to finish, this is just an incredible movie. I I honestly think this might be Christopher Nolan's best movie, and it, it's certainly the movie he's been building up to for like his entire career, just combining all his interests into this uh, big big massive movie and uh so yeah that's my rambly oppenheimer thoughts (laughs) no that's great yeah i i really 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 enjoyed this movie i i mean it's three hours long and um for the first hour i was shocked at how much time 
uh, elapsed over like how much story time Nolan was able to pack into that first hour. There's that whole section where Oppenheimer is basically like still in school and he almost, again, this is like a full spoiler conversation here. So he uh, tries to poison his teacher at one point, which I thought was just like a fascinating thing that I certainly didn't know uh, about him. And I don't know, like I have not read the, that biography that this movie is based on. So I don't know if that's like a, a Christopher Nolan edition, or like where he's taking liberties there, but that seems like too specific for him to, uh, to have made that up. But, um, and just the way that, uh, yeah, like the the visualization in the the early stretch of the movie where he just seems like you said he's he's so haunted. He's like it's almost like he um, he exists years ahead of everybody else. He he knows that that something is coming and he can kind of almost see it in in his head, but it's not quite coalescing just yet. Um, and I thought that the way that he was able to the way that Nolan was able to like visualize the ideas of like theory and uh you know atoms and particles and nuclei and all that kind of stuff um it seems like impossible to do but he did it in a way that that um was really propulsive and energetic and just sort of made the whole thing feel like you said in your review like a thriller so um yeah i i was really taken by this movie there's two tracks of the movie there's the the sort of building of the bomb and then these hearings and and there's uh I guess even the hearing part is split into two sections where Oppenheimer is sort of being questioned by uh, Jason Clark, who plays like this really, um, this kind of asshole lawyer prosecutor figure who you love to hate because he just does such a good job of being this guy who was just badgering uh, Oppenheimer for his uh, past political associations and things like that. It's very much like the the Red Scare sort of uh, McCarthy or McCarthyism type of vibe going on there. Um, And then you've also got the hearing of Robert Downey Jr.'s character, uh, Strauss, who um, is like up for a, a cabinet position in, in the, the U S government and is like basically being put not on trial, but on, on public display, uh, and being cross-examined by all these, um, I guess they're, what are they? Senators or, or, uh, yeah, I think they're senators. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I was just like kind of surprised by the, the dual tracks of this movie. Obviously no one loves the idea of like messing around in time and, and jumping around in that it's, that's been a staple of his filmography since the beginning, but uh, I guess I just wasn't expecting like the, the idea that this movie builds to Trinity, the, the Trinity bomb test. And then there's like what seems like a whole nother hour plus of the movie after that. Yeah. And it kind of feels like, wait, what could happen after that? And the movie dips <laughs> for me a little bit like pacing wise, but then it just ramps right back up and, and ends on this incredible high note. Um, so just like structurally, it's a really interesting movie. What did you make of the, the structure of it? I love that structure because like you said, it was it wasn't really what I was expecting, and, and it keeps it from feeling like a, a traditional biopic too. Because I can't think of another biopic like this where half the movie is focused on like a completely different character. Like Robert Downey Jr. is almost as much of a main character as Oppenheimer in this, which I was not really expecting at all. The way mm-hmm. he's the way their their narratives are running, uh, you know, uh, parallel to each other. And I just thought that was a fascinating way to tell this story, and it also. Uh, Nolan has said that, you know, the, the reason it's black and white and color, the way it's the um, the the color is pretty much everything from Oppenheimer's point of view. Every time the movie's in color, we're seeing things the way Oppenheimer saw them. And anytime the movie is in black and white, we're seeing things the way other people, specifically Strauss, saw them. And I think that was just like a really cool way to get sort of 
both like a, a mythology into the movie and also stick to the facts where it's like he can he can play a little fast and loose with history because it's it's Hoppenheimer's point of view. Of course, it's of course, things aren't going to be exactly as they were. It's, it's mm-hmm. how he's seeing them. And then the black and white is like, well, no, this is how it actually kind of happened if you pay attention. And uh, it's not afraid to, you know, portray Oppenheimer as as not a great person. I, I thought that was also a fascinating thing. Like there is like uh, this buildup to the movie where people are like, I bet this movie is going to be pro bomb, which first of all is like insane, <laughs> but, <laughs> but people were literally saying that they were like, Oh, I bet Nolan makes this pro bomb. And it's like, what are you talking about? But at the same time, it's, it's pro Oppenheimer, but it's also not afraid to be like, you know, he's an egotistical guy. He's a womanizer. He's, he's a guy who built a bomb that killed countless people it's it's you know he's not without flaws and nolan isn't afraid to make this such a complex look at a complex person and uh it's i feel like you he's like the only director right now who can get away with that on this sort of scale like you could make a smaller movie like that but a big big movie like this and having such a a complex uh not so likable protagonist is is Mm -hmm. a risky move and it pays off so well Yeah. And this subject matter too is like so thorny for a lot of people where like, you know, there are arguments on both sides about the, the validity and the, you know, the necessary nature or, or whether this was unnecessary or cruel or, or whatever. Like this is such a a turning point in human history that like Nolan, uh, I think wisely taps into, you know, I think they, they refer to Killian Murphy's character Oppenheimer as like the most important man in the world or something like that at one point. And then uh, Matt Damon's character has that great line where he's like, this is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity or whatever. And like, I think, you know, valid cases could be made for, for both of those claims. Um, so this is like an incredible moment to dramatize uh, on, on a big scale, like you said, but like the, the thorny nature of, um, you know, whether this stuff was, whether the atomic bomb was justified or needed to end the war or like, you know, the, the um, incredible uh, fallout and like uh, after effects and consequences of, of that and, and the sort of, uh, I guess, physical and psychic damage that that um, that that unleashed on on Hiroshima and and uh, you know it, it was it, there's just like so much in there and no one is not necessarily interested in coming down on a side right like he he sort of leaves the movie he, he leaves the audience to draw their own conclusions from something like this and and you know a, a movie of this scale again like you would think a big whatever hundred million dollar plus summer blockbuster would want to spoon feed the audience a little bit more, but it's, it's kind of a challenging movie in that way where it doesn't really present you with like an easy uh, answer or even like Nolan's personal, you can't really get a sense of like what Nolan himself thinks of it. What, what do you think about like the, the way that he handled that, that part of the movie, I guess. It's just a, it's just so like you were saying, and like I said, it's just so, unexpected for this sort of movie on this sort of scale that it, it, I don't say it caught me off guard, but I was like, Oh, that's what he's doing here. He's doing this complex portrait of this complex man. And at the same time, while I don't think he's saying whether or not we should drop the, should have dropped the bomb or not. I do think the movie is saying the building, the bomb was a mistake. I guess it's sort of because at the, 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 the finale, the, the very, ending of the film where Oppenheimer at the beginning of the movie, there's this 
thing where we see Oppenheimer meets with Albert Einstein and we don't hear their conversation. And the movie keeps hinting at this thing. And it's like, what were they talking about? At the very end of the movie, it's revealed that Oppenheimer told Einstein that, you know, building the bomb basically assured humanity's destruction in one way or another. And Mm -hmm. Einstein is understandably uh, upset by this as anyone would be. (laughs) And that's such a bleak ending. Like the way the, the movie just wraps it shows like you get shots of like nuclear warheads and there's this uh thing where oppenheimer is imagining he's in a plane during the blitz because it's it's like a flashback to something someone says earlier and it's Mm -hmm. just this this horrifying realization that no matter where you stand on this topic it can't be denied that building this bomb uh, splitting the atom and getting to the point where they could build this bomb uh is is something that could ultimately destroy everything and no matter what, because there's a early in the movie they talk about how like, Oh, there's a chance when we light this bomb, it's going to ignite the atmosphere and destroy the entire world. And yeah. eventually they're like, all right, that's not going to happen. But Oppenheimer says at the end that he thinks that is what happened one way or another. And that's mm-hmm. such a harrowing, disturbing ending that it really like when that when the movie ended i just like walked out of the theater in like a daze just like jesus christ what what an yeah. ending yeah and the way that he um the way that he uh i guess visualizes that where there's like shots from space of the planet and like all On of the, fire. the fiery explosions coming up yeah it's it's so um incredible and like in terms of the visualization of the movie, the the moments I was talking about earlier with like the atoms and the particles and all that stuff sort of spinning around in Oppenheimer's head, uh, all of that. I mean, I think no one has said like there's no CG in this movie, which I find kind of hard to believe because there's CG in every movie. Um, but I think maybe what he to to give him like the the benefit of the doubt, maybe what he means is like there's no CG in you know, the, the key moments that people would expect there to be. Um, but it reminded me a little bit of like Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain, the way that um, the atomic stuff was was visualized, where like, I believe he did a lot of like uh, microscopic filmography or um, uh, cinematography and like, uh, you know, macro photography and things like that in, in that movie to capture these kind of like otherworldly um, landscapes and, and things. And that's kind of what what the Adam stuff looks like in, in mostly in the early part of this movie, but it, it comes back again at the end. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to note that cause I thought it was like a really cool way of, of just showing something that on paper, you know, people always talk about like, you know, if you make a movie about a writer, how do you make that interesting? Because you're just sitting at a computer or sitting at a typewriter or whatever. And like the, the same kind of thing could be said about Oppenheimer, this guy who like works in theoretical physics and like these abstract concepts and ideas. And how do you actually, visualize that and make that interesting for an audience. And I think no one found a cool way to do it. So, yeah. Um, so let's jump ahead for a second and, and talk about like how this fits into Christopher Nolan's filmography. You mentioned that like this might be his best movie, but as we were talking here, one of the things that I was just thinking of is like this idea of escalation is something that has come up in his films before the very end of Batman begins. They talk about like the, you know, if, if we do, if the police force does this and the criminals, criminals are going to use, um, you know, armor plate or whatever, uh, bullet, what, what is it called? The uh, armor piercing rounds. Uh, if we wear bulletproof vests, they're going to wear armor piercing rounds. If we do yeah. this, uh, they're going to do that. And like the existence of Batman means that a Joker is going to come along kind of thing. So this idea of, uh, of escalation has, has shown up in his filmography before. Um, 
are there any other, I guess, through lines in in, fil- in Nolan's filmography that you can think of that are tapped in here, aside from like the obsessive male protagonist lead of the story? I mean, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Just the idea of these obsessive male protagonists who are are always like obsessed with their work and and delving into that. And um, <clears throat> sorry, uh, that that that's a big one. And um, I'm trying to. I know there are more, but I'm like coming up short for them but yeah uh i'm sorry no 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 yeah i'm i'm putting you on the spot here so we didn't talk about any of this stuff beforehand yeah i was just trying to think because this movie to me it feels like um it in some ways it feels very much like a nolan movie because of that obsessive protagonist and and because of the look and you know some of the his sort of um visual style i think and the practicality that that comes across and the sort of deliberate nature of of the of where the camera is at all times and kind of the, you know, his movies have a, a kind of sheen to them, a, a look to them that I think uh, you can maybe identify at a glance, even though he's used multiple cinematographers over the years. Yeah. But um, aside from that look and, and that protagonist, it kind of feels like very different to me than a lot of other Nolan movies. It, it's almost like, you know, last week we talked about, we ranked the Mission Impossible movies and that's really easy to do because all of those movies are trying to do the same thing and they're all kind of sort of, you know, doing a riff on the same type of genre or whatever. And this, it, I just find my brain breaking a little bit trying to think of, um, you know, <laughs> how I would put this movie up against something like The Dark Knight or The Prestige or these movies that have like totally different end yeah. goals in mind than what this does. Um, so how do you think about, you know, where this fits, I guess, or stands in Nolan's filmography and how it compares to his other work. I do think it shows him growing as, as a storyteller, depending on what kind of stories he wants to tell, because uh, even though I think Oppenheimer is a pretty intimate movie for how big it is, it's also a very big story with, with complex moving parts. And he sort of started off quiet, you know, he starts off the following and he goes to memento and these are, these are, you know, they're they're twisty movies, but they're they're lower in scale, and he just keeps building and building, and he's going uh, bigger and bigger, and not just in terms of subject matter, but in how he shoots the film. You know, he starts shooting exclusively on IMAX, and uh, it's it just sh- I think it just shows that he's becoming this filmmaker that he wanted to be from the start, but he couldn't quite get there because he didn't have the budgets he needed, and now he's on top of the world, he can do whatever he wants pretty much. He's got like a blank check. And yeah, uh, I think that that's sort of where he is in his, his career where he's, he's got to the point where it's like, he can make a movie like this. He's, he's proven himself again and again. And now he can make this really complex three hour movie about the atomic bomb and, and make it like a big blockbuster, which is just so surreal when you think about it. Like, Batman is a blockbuster. I, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, you don't associate that with like blockbusters, <laughs> but for all intents and purposes, Oppenheimer is a blockbuster movie. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a summer movie. It's got a big budget. It's got big stars. Uh, you know, everyone is in this movie. It's one of those movies where every, every other minute someone new shows up and you're like, Hey, it's that guy. So mm-hmm. it's just a big, big summer movie that just happens to be about this really dark, complex subject matter. And uh, I said this earlier, but Nolan is like one of the few filmmakers who can get away with that on that scale right now. And uh, I just think that's sort of what he's, he's building to. He's been building towards this movie for his whole career. And now he's finally here. And I, I don't know what he's going to do like to top this. Cause I'm, I'm <laughs> dying to say, 
What did you think about the Trinity test? The the movie builds to that as one of its its huge points, and then as we said, like you know, goes off into this whole this whole other thing with hearings sort of after that, culminating later on with the ending. But but the Trinity test is like uh, it seems like the first two thirds of the movie anyway are building up to that moment. That was a, a amazing moment. It's it's haunting and it's beautiful and it's terrifying all at once. He does. Uh, and as far as we know, it was done completely practically, which I don't even know how you make a, a explosion like that in a practical way. But it, 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 like I obviously I knew about the Trinity test, but I didn't know about how it unfolded and how it unfolds here is is in this like dreamy slash nightmare way where the explosion happens and there's no sound. You just see this pillar of fire building up up into the air, and it's like biblical. It's like a something from the Bible. And mm-hmm. then there's this shockwave that blows everything back. And it's, but that doesn't happen after like, it feels like a full minute of like silence. And it's yeah. like, it's eerie. It's just like this eerie silence. And then all of a sudden everyone gets knocked on their ass. So yeah, I, I actually had a jump scare moment when the sound kicked in because I yeah. thought that they had made the decision to not have the sound and just focus on the visuals and focus on Killian Murphy's uh, character's breathing during that moment. I was like, oh, that's a really interesting decision. And then like, yeah, like a minute later or something, the sound just blows in. And I was like, I jumped in my chair, like, holy <laughs> shit, I can't believe they did that. And the, uh, you know, just to talk about the sound for a second, like, I don't know how, did you see this movie in IMAX, Chris? Yeah, I did. Okay, I didn't, and I I wish that I did. I wish there was a a better IMAX theater near me, but I just saw it in like my local AMC, which, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about now the the problems that we have with AMC theaters, but the sound was like incredible in that theater. The the rumbling and like my chair was shaking, and this was not even like a 4DX uh, screening or whatever. So like, I I can't imagine what it might be like seeing it in like a premium format kind of experience, but um yeah, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to that because I'm, I'm pretty sure this movie is going to win the best, uh, uh, the Oscar for best original sound or whatever they, they call that, but uh, best sound editing because um, it's just like, yeah, it, I mean, employed with like laser precision and they know exactly what they're doing. And and the way that like the sound drops in and out when Oppenheimer is having his visions and things like that, when he's giving that big speech later on, I thought it was just like, you know, um, expertly handled. So um, oh, yeah. shout out to Ever- the sound team. Every like craft on display in this movie is is phenomenal. The editing is so good. The way it cuts around uh, in, during scene, it's it, like you said earlier. It's able to convey a ton of information in, in in a quick way, just because it's edited in this really like snappy uh, way, way where the movie just almost never sits still. It's constantly moving, and the combination of the sound design and the editing and the score by uh Ludwig Gernson, I believe mm-hmm, it is mm-hmm. Gornson is just so it's that score never lets up it's like this propulsive uh droning sort of uh noise that's always there. I don't think there is like there's there there are obviously a few moments where there aren't there isn't music but uh for the most part it feels like it's music like it's wall to wall music from beginning to end and it, it's never distracting it, it's it's coalescing with the way the movie is cut. It's almost like the music is being cut to the rhythm of what we're seeing, which it probably is, which (laughs) so uh, just those, those technical aspects alone are just uh, top notch. Like I'm not a big award season guy, but this feels like the movie to like sweep every technical award. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Unless Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum (laughs) mania wins. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I don't even have a follow-up to that Chris. That's, that's so good. I can't even, I can't even top that. Um, so you were talking about the, the sound, uh, the, I'm sorry, the score, um, really blanketing this movie. And I feel that way about the dialogue too. Like this, this is not only Nolan's, Nolan's most talky movie, but maybe like one of the talkiest movies to ever exist. Like it's a very talky movie being three hours long and like every scene. I mean, there are a couple moments where like characters are riding on horseback or something across a, uh, 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 yeah, desert landscape or whatever, where like nobody's talking and like during the actual explosion, nobody's talking during the, the Trinity test. But, um, for the most part, there's either, yeah, like the hearing is going on or characters are just sort of like rapid fire. Um, I think that that helps with the propulsive nature of the story. Cause I was, this is a long movie, but I was like fully wrapped the entire time, just like completely glued to the screen, did not want to miss a single second of it. So, uh, I think all of it was just, it, it, yeah, it, it coalesces in this really, um, thrilling, beautiful way. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about the performances. I think we talked about Murphy and how great he is. I mean, he's just like, he looks so um, like almost emaciated at certain moments yeah. too. Like the physicality of the performance is really incredible. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about him before we talk about some of the other people? No, it's just, it's um, just the way he acts with his eyes, as I said, is, is, is like, I think my most, imp- what I was most impressed with here, the way he's just using his eyes as convert, like to demand, he's like saying a million things without saying anything at times with his eyes. And, but I also like, it's a very um, introspective performance, which is not easy to do. And, I, I was very impressed with how he handled that introspective nature of the character about how we can sort of re- almost like read his thoughts at times, the way he's, he's observing things, the way he's, he's looking at things. And I also like that he's not afraid to play up Oppenheimer's sort of dual natures. Like there's a scene where Oppenheimer's at a hearing and he's like cracking jokes. And it's so like, mm-hmm. it's almost like jarring because the rest of the movie, he's so serious. And then during this one scene, he's like, He's telling some jokes. And of course that's a black and white scene. So it's not from his point of view. It's how someone else saw him during that moment. And mm-hmm. so Murphy in a way has to contend with these. Conf- he's got, he's kind of play the part in two different ways. He has to play it in the main Oppenheimer point of view way. And he has to play it in the, the black and white uh, other sort of way. So mm-hmm. again, that's not an easy thing. And he does it so well. And um I think this has got to be like his best performance. I, he's, I don't think I've ever seen like a bad performance from him, but this is like monumental work he's doing. Yeah, it really is. And Downey, I thought was incredible. I mean, he, oh my God. you know, like there's been, there's been so much talk about since 2008, how he's basically just like adopted the Tony Stark persona and like so much of his off camera, um, uh, you know, the, the late night talk show interviews and, and, um, hot ones type videos and things that he's appeared on, you know, online and all that kind of stuff. He, he just is that guy. And that guy is completely absent from his performance in this movie, which is so wonderful to see because it shows that he hasn't given up as an actor yet. He is, he's not uh, fully just, you know, been become like subsumed by that personality. There's still opportunities and, and um, a fight in him to do something interesting and different than what he, what's been so incredibly successful for him for the past 20 years almost or whatever. So, um, yeah, I was, I was really like, uh, I, I don't know if moved is, is maybe the wrong word, but like uh, kind of a little bit moved that, by that performance, just the, the, the different nature of it. What did you think of, of Downey in this movie? It's, it's probably one of his best performances too. And it's like you said, it's not the typical 
Downey Jr. performance. He doesn't do all his his trademark shtick, and Nolan specifically told him not to do that, and it it pays off incredibly well. Um, it was it was just like a nice reminder that oh, Robert Downey Jr. is a really good actor, and he can still knock it out of the park if he's he's given the right material, if he's given something other than Tony Stark. And I also love the sort of dual nature of this character about how the movie sort of throws this twist in there that he's he's for all for lack of a better word he's he's sort of the villain of the piece because we we learn that uh he's the guy who helped try and destroy oppenheimer's name after you know after the trinity test after all that was said and done oppenheimer started speaking out against uh the hydrogen bomb and you know the, the arms race in general and uh robert Downey jr's character is the character who sort of pushes for him to get discredited and have his name trampled through the mud. So he can't, you know, in, uh, influence the, the, the politics of it all. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, it gives Robert Downey Jr. this chance to do like a heel turn. And it's like, like, he, you know, he starts off sort of like, Oh, he's a likable guy. And then there's like a scene where he's like, ha ha ha. It was me all along. Yeah, yeah. And the music gets really dramatic. And it's like, Oh shit. I can't <laughs> believe this movie did that. It's like, it's just such a cool, unexpected i was not expecting twists in this movie i think and so when that twist happens and you know i guess you can't really call it a twist because it's history but if you don't know the history you're gonna be like oh shit i didn't see that coming yeah that was great and like the the petty nature of the whole thing too because you mentioned that scene where uh killing murphy's character is like uh, cracking jokes and that's kind of at downey's expense or downey's character's expense a little bit and like you know, that happened, I think, six years before the the hearings that are happening or, or whatever at the end of this movie. And Downey's character is just like this petty little bitch who just like, <laughs> you know, uh, kept this grudge and like is now using whatever influence he can to try to, um, yeah, screw over Oppenheimer in whatever ways that, that are possible. And like the, the ending of the movie is so satisfying because he gets his comeuppance that the, the uh, Rami Malek's character who, you know, I'm, I'm on record as not being a big Rami Malek fan, but like he plays this character who the audience loves to see because we know that Downey is the quote unquote villain of this movie. And then Rami Malek's character comes in and basically like tries to, um, you know, blow the lid off of the whole thing and basically like point to Downey as the villain and, and out him in that way to the public and um, and and like screw up his uh, his plans to be um, uh, sworn in as, as a cabinet member. Um, so that's like really satisfying just to see Downey, like, you know, revel in this sort of um, the gleeful uh, smugness almost that he delivers in that performance. And especially in that moment with Alden Ehrenreich, where he's like, yes, it was me the whole time kind of thing. And then just to see him have his legs completely kicked out from underneath him is just uh, such a great ending. And like that, especially the idea of like, you know, he's obsessed with what Oppenheimer might have said to Einstein yeah. to to uh, poison him, you know, uh, to poison Einstein against him and like the scientific community. And he's like so insular and, and selfish and self-centered that it doesn't even cross his mind that maybe they were talking about something that doesn't have anything to do with him. That, I just yeah. thought it was such a great uh, way to end this movie. So that's such a great insight into that character, too, because it's 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 like pathetic and it's also so egotistical because like why would you assume that Oppenheimer and Einstein were talking about you? Like if two of the smartest men in the world (laughs) were having a conversation, I wouldn't be like, I bet they're talking about me. Like, yeah, but that's like immediately where his mind went. Like, Oh, they must be talking about me. And that's such a 
great insight into that character because he holds that like that happened years ago in the in the story and he holds that grudge for a year he, like he can't let it go and yeah it never once crossed his mind that they weren't talking about him at all it's such a great little detail so the movie is just like a who's who of all of the white men in American yes. acting, basically. I mean, this has been a part of the meme basically since the casting has happened. And it's, it, as you mentioned, really fun to see people like David Krumholtz and Josh Hartnett and people like that pop up in small roles. Benny, or, uh, is it Benny Safdie? Yeah, it is right? Benny Safdie. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, just a, a ton of familiar faces. There aren't a ton of women in this movie. Um, Florence Pugh, I thought was really great as uh, as Oppenheimer's mistress. I think her name is Jean. And then um, there are like maybe three other female characters in the whole movie, but one of them is Emily Blunt and she plays Oppenheimer's wife, uh, Kitty, I think her name is. Yeah. And um, I think you mentioned in, in your review that you sh- thought that she was a little bit underused. Uh, you want to tell me about what you thought about Emily Blunt in this film? Yeah, Emily Blunt is a great actor. I think she gets a little bit of uh, the short end of the stick here. I understand why, because it's it's very much about Oppenheimer and building the bomb and all that stuff. But uh, the movie mostly requires her to just sort of like nag in the background and be like drunk. She's like drunk all the time. They show that she has a drinking problem. And so most of her scenes are her either being drunk and unable to like stand up or her like fighting with Oppenheimer about, you know, the way he's handling things. And she does get a, a nice moment sort of near the end where she gets to sit down during the hearing and, and blow all the lawyers out of the water and stuff like that. And that's a great moment, but it's like, it almost feels like a concession where it was like, Oh shit, we got to give Emily Blunt something to do in our movie. We got mm. to give her this scene. So you know, I don't have a lot of qualms in the movie, but that's one of my bigger ones is that the, the, the female characters are are definitely underrepresented and that's just sort of a thing that that Nolan does unfortunately and yeah I, I I'm not a, as down on him as some people seem to be where it's like I hate all his movies because he does this like I just think it's a, a a flaw in his design he for some reason he can't he's not great at right at, at female characters it's just his yeah. his his crutch unfortunately. Yeah, I th- I think I was a little higher on Emily Blunt's uh, performance in this movie than you are, or or I guess inclusion or whatever the the representation of that character, the sort of um her her role in the story and how that character was used um than than you are, especially that that ending moment which you mentioned was great and I thought it was like certainly the highlight of that character, her the ability to just like tell those guys off um again very satisfying stuff, but I, I thought it, this was better than like um what what's her name Claire. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of like the first man actress Claire. Oh, Claire Foy. Claire Foy as the the wife of uh, of Ryan Gosling's character in First Man, where she's it's basically like the phone wife, you know that trope that's been <laughs> trotted out over the past ten plus years or, or much longer, but really like highlighted in the past ten years or whatever. Um, I thought Emily Blunt was going to have that type of role where she's just yeah. you know staring off into the distance and like pulling laundry off of the sheet and like you know taking care of the kid the whole time. But I thought I was I was pleasantly surprised to see that she has a little bit more to do in this movie than that. So again, a very low bar to clear, but um, but yeah, I, I appreciated her in this movie. And then you mentioned like that was one of your big qualms. I think my my biggest qualm with the movie is something that uh, this documentary, The Day After Trinity, which I talked about earlier this week, um, it's a documentary about Oppenheimer and the, the after effects and, and aftermath of what happens. Uh, when the the a bomb is dropped, I think I think that documentary does a really good job of actually showing what happened to Hiroshima and and like the um, they use archival footage to show 
you know, the actual uh, impact of what happened, like what the city looked like before, what it looked like after, what it did to the people. Um, they're like visual representations of like, hey, these are the consequences of, of what went down here. And there's a moment in in this movie, Oppenheimer, where the characters are like, I think they're still at Los Alamos and they're they're saying something like, the bomb was dropped 36 days ago and there's like a slideshow going on off screen where you know, this person is like clicking the thing and, and you can tell that the slide is changing and more horrific imagery is popping up and sh being shown to the characters sitting in this room. But the camera is on Oppenheimer's face the whole time or on his body the whole time. Yeah. And he kind of looks at a couple of the images and then just like looks away and just does that like billion yard stare that Killian Murphy is so good at doing in this movie. But like, I think the film itself, Oppenheimer does not reckon with the after effects in, in the same way that the documentary does. And, and I think that's maybe to Oppenheimer's detriment a little bit because it doesn't necessarily, it just kind of leaves it a little bit more abstract than, uh, than it, it could have. Otherwise, I think that the movie might've been even more powerful had they shown some of that stuff. I, I realize that's like horrible to, to say. And obviously the whole thing was like horrible to, to contemplate yeah. and, and whatever, but like the, you know, if you're making an entire movie about this, I just felt like maybe the, the consequences should have been focused in on a little bit more. So that would be my big complaint with Oppenheimer if I had one. But um, yeah, was there anything else that you wanted to mention about the? Oh, oh, uh, real quick. The, the Day After Trinity is streaming for free on the Criterion channel. Like even if you don't have a subscription from now until July 31st, uh, you can watch that movie for free. And and there's a we wrote about it on Slashfilm. There's a link in that post. So uh, if you want to check that out as sort of, um, uh, you know, a compare and contrast example of like real history and, and what um, Nolan did with Oppenheimer. That's a really great way to do that. So uh, Chris, were there any other, I guess, observations or things that you wanted to mention about Oppenheimer that we didn't touch on yet? I just want to see it again. And that's not like, it's a three hour movie. Like, Oh, I want to sit through a three hour movie again. That's not something I say that often, but uh, I feel like this is one of those movies I'm going to want to revisit over and over again, just to like absorb everything that's going on because uh, like we said, so much is going on in this movie and the first hour is so quick the way it cuts around in time that I know there's stuff that just like flew over my head and I really want to like absorb the movie as much as I possibly can. And uh, yeah, so I just, I'm thrilled this movie exists. Uh, it's not an easy movie. It's not, you know, it's not like the feel good movie of the summer. It's definitely <laughs> like a heavy adult film. And just the fact that, this exists gives me, I don't want to say gives me hope because nothing gives me hope anymore, <laughs> but the fact that we can still get a big original, I mean, it's a death from a book, but for all intents and purposes, it's an original adult movie aimed at adults. It's not aimed at, at, uh, you know, TikTokers or anything like that. <laughs> and the fact that it exists and it's, it's being released to all this fanfare is, is it's like refreshing in a way. It's like, Oh man, this can still happen. This is what should be happening. And uh, I, I guess the, the the moral of the story is we should enjoy this because I don't know when it's going to happen again. Like it just, especially now with the strike going on and studios just being uh, complete boneheads about yes. everything. <laughs> I can't imagine we're going to get in a, like a big event like this in a while. So let, let's enjoy it while we can folks. Yeah, that's great. Great advice. All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to talk about Barbie. All right, so now I am joined by a slash film editor, BJ Colangelo. BJ, how's it going? Oh, oh, it's Christmas, as far as I'm concerned. 
Yes, I was one of the, um, I think the number was around 200,000 people that did the Barbie Oppenheimer double feature uh, on the same day. I think you had the pleasure of seeing a press screening beforehand, so you didn't have the, the same sort of a civilian opportunity that, that everybody else did. Um, but uh, yeah, let's let's dive into our thoughts on Barbie. You wrote the review, I've linked to that in the show notes, but uh, let's kick things off with just general thoughts. What did you think about this movie, BJ? I cannot believe how wonderful this movie is. And I shouldn't say that I can't believe. I fully had faith in Greta Gerwig. I fully have faith in Barbie. She has never let me down over the 30 years I've been on this planet. But it's one of those movies where everything could have been terrible. Like this could have been a disaster. And the fact that it is not a disaster, that it is a perfect love letter to the doll and the brand but then it's also very funny it's very heartfelt i cried like five times it is really saying something with its message so it doesn't feel like these soulless ip movies that we get from time to time Mm -hmm. i'm just like so blown away at how wonderfully she captured all of it and incorporated all of these elements together yeah i'm i was thinking a lot today after seeing it last night about Marvel and how we often talk about Marvel movies in the way where we say, oh, yeah, you know, they had so much to do, so many things to accomplish, so many different things to address and set up and other points that were handed to them by other filmmakers and all these like sort of other expectations aside from just making a movie. And Greta Gerwig had a lot of those same things with this movie. And I, I, you know, I feel like we, we grade a lot of Marvel movies on a curve. Uh, because of all of those expectations. And from what I've seen, the the early responses to Barbie have been great. So I don't think we have to worry about uh, all of that stuff. But it just, it really underscores the difficulty of the needle that she had to thread with all of this stuff because there's so much happening in this movie and yet it comes out feeling cohesive and uh, light on its feet and hilarious, but also... It's a movie that really engages with like real human feelings instead of just this um sort of plastic aesthetic that that it could have been. Uh, there's just so much going on here, and she was really juggling a million things. And I, I, yeah, it, it kind of just feels like a miracle of a movie in some ways. It really does, and I think you're right in the way that we sort of like grade Marvel movies on a curve because of everything. But if anything, I think that she had a much harder time because Barbie is not just a brand or an interest. She is also a reflection of our culture. She has constantly been used as a barometer to determine whether or not like women's progress is good or bad or beauty standards or what have you. I mean, Barbie is the most referenced like fictional character in music history and it's not even close. (laughs) So the fact that she is also a very important part of just the fabric of our society, whether we want to acknowledge that's what the purpose is or not. She's got to also account for all of that, which means there's also a lot of like big personal feelings that people have about Barbie, about whether or not, you know, they felt bad, like Barbie made them feel bad, liking Mm -hmm. Barbie or not liking Barbie. Like it's, she's such a complicated figure. And the fact that she found a way to weave in all of that with a just genuinely fun movie with like really funny moments and a fantastic ensemble cast and quite possibly like, like if this does not win like best production design at the Oscars, like what are we even doing here? Like no (laughs) other movie is going to be like 
a fraction of what was accomplished here. And uh, the fact that it was all able to do that and it doesn't feel like any of the stories are fighting for supremacy. They all feel like they're cohesive, like you Mm -hmm. said. It's shocking. Like, it's unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah, really incredible stuff. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the performances, and I think we can probably start with Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. Um, I feel like Margot Robbie might, in the the large scheme of things here, Ryan Gosling might overshadow her because he has the the flashier role. Um, But I I don't want to sideline what Margot Robbie does in this movie because it's it's very impressive. She's so good in this role and she's able to sort of walk that that same in in the similar way to what Gerwig Gerwig is doing in terms of like having to balance all of these things. Margot Robbie like takes all of that on her shoulders and embodies and sort of personifies a lot of that stuff. And oh my gosh, also yeah. <laughs> plays the straight man at the same time, which as everybody knows is like more difficult and not quite as quote unquote fun as playing, you know, the more wild out of control sort of side characters that populate stories like this. So I just wanted to write up top, like, you know, uh, give some praise to Margot Robbie here. What did you think about her? performance? Oh yeah. I, I absolutely loved her. So you're totally right in that. She's sort of playing the straight man. That's kind of how Barbie exists in all of her, uh, different adaptations, whether it's, you know, the, the movies or the, the TV series, Barbie tends to be like the neutral person. She's the most grounded character and everyone else is acting cartoonish. So I liked that that was reflected here, but the emotional journey that Margot Robbie takes us on is, it's brilliant like it's truly brilliant because she has kind of like the 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 head empty nothing behind the eyes sort of charm at the beginning and you slowly watch you watch her become human basically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like the emotions start becoming deeper i mean the first time that she cries and experiences what crying is is one of the most beautiful close-ups I've ever seen. It is, like, (laughs) just stunning. Um, And then even when she has, like, her big emotional burst, when she just can't take it anymore, it's cathartic to watch because I think anybody who's been socialized as a woman in the American society specifically, I can't speak to other cultures because I'm not from them, uh, but anybody who's been socialized as a woman knows that feeling, knows what it feels like to have everything on your shoulders and then you just can't do it anymore Mm -hmm. and you have to break and watching her break just broke my heart because I think there's just this intrinsic relationship and this this kinship that I think naturally happens when you see her as this figure because again you've got all of that real life baggage attached to her so like watching Barbie cry was like way too much for me. I was like, I can't, I feel like my best friend is crying right now and I can't do anything right now to help her. But girl, I feel this. Um, yeah, she was so amazing. And I think that it was hard for a lot of people to talk about her because it's hard to talk about the performance without also spoiling the movie. Right. And I think that's also why Gosling got a lot of attention. But also I think people just have really missed funny Ryan Gosling. And so it's, you know, that that new exciting thing to celebrate again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it feels like he's like back in the pocket doing what he was meant to be doing. And you mentioned in your review, and and I had this thought, you know, while I was watching the movie, and I was glad to see that you, you put it in print in, in your review, that his performance in this movie is actually like legitimately Oscar worthy. Like I think he could be, or certainly worthy of a nomination. Like I really feel like, you know he's doing uh this is this is a bright poppy fun uh sometimes goofy sometimes serious movie um 
and I, I don't know if the Academy is going to take this this film seriously. They they tend to actually look at movies that perform well at the box office with a little bit um, of a you know a little bit more seriously. They they look at those with um, I guess brighter eyes or however you want to say it. Uh, and this movie seems to be. Uh, on track to perform very well. So maybe there's a chance, but like, I really feel like Ryan Gosling should get a best supporting actor nomination for this. I do too. He's, <laughs> he's so good. And like, he's so funny and he's doing so much incredible work because he's balancing between like a very high camp performance, but at the same time it is so grounded and you're watching him play with a lot of this, like he's bringing a, a sense of like authenticity and humanity to what are essentially like live action cartoons. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of shared energy in this that I would say to like the first Scooby-Doo movie, as well as like the Brady Bunch movie parodies, like they have a similar energy, but it only works because it is so obvious. He believes in everything that he's doing. And I think after last year with everything everywhere all at once, like if we are willing to give Kiwe Kwan an Oscar where he has a fight with a fanny pack, I don't see why Ryan Gosling should not be considered as Ken. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And, and, you know, in the past several years, like the uh, expansion of the Academy membership and like the, the sort of general um, trend toward maybe opening things up to appreciating performances that, that may have been uh, marginalized or forgotten about. Otherwise, maybe we are on that, on that path where something like this can actually get uh, recognized by the Academy. But even if it doesn't, I mean, this is like a performance for the ages because he is just like firing on all cylinders, completely hilarious. And, uh, and yeah, like you mentioned, like there's a, there's a real um, deep seated insecurity to this character that you can, that, that comes out uh, openly at the end of the movie um, that you feel. And he's able to sort of uh, step into a bunch of different versions of this character in ways that are just like consistently entertaining all the way across. So um, yeah, just wanted to give a, a special shout out to him. Um, I, I wrote down like best moments. Can we talk about some best moments? And then I just wrote on our doc here, too many to count, question mark, question mark, question mark, <laughs> because th this movie is like so, th there's, uh, Jacob said this about Oppenheimer earlier, uh, I think in our Slack channel or maybe on Twitter or something that like, there's so much movie in Oppenheimer. I feel the same way about Barbie. There's so much movie in this movie. There's the the designs and everything, like the, the Barbie land of it all is so, um, like captivating and you're kind of like blasted backwards in your seat just by the the sheer uh uh i don't know you're kind of like stunned into submission looking at it like holy crap they actually built this stuff and this this exists and it looks uh it looks real in a fake way in the perfect way that they were aiming for and then you've got this whole subplot where or really the plot of the movie where barbie and ken go to uh, the real world and the movie just kind of goes and goes and goes from there. I, I, I'm so happy that the marketing hid some of the best moments of this movie because yeah. um, I was not expecting that. So that was a pleasant surprise. But uh, I guess, I don't know, BJ, do you have any moments that just jump immediately to mind when I think about, when I ask you about the best moments in Barbie? And what's so wild is that the moments that I love the best, they are also completely different in tone a lot of times um when ken discovers the patriarchy oh and like God. that men are in charge i was laughing so hard especially when he just has that like face off of sylvester stallone in a fur coat because <laughs> like the second you see it it's like oh this is such like Ken doll logic of masculinity. I'm obsessed with this. This is so funny. Or him like being at the school and talking to random kids. It's like, 
bro, what are you doing? Like, you can't, <laughs> you can't be doing this. Like, stuff like that is really funny. But then there are these really touching moments. I was really, really taken aback with Rhea Perlman as Ruth Handler. Um, I had known Rhea was in the movie because they had announced her casting, but she did not get a character poster the way everybody else in this movie did. So I was mm. like, what is Rhea Perlman going to be doing in this movie? And when they finally show her when Barbie uh, is running through Mattel trying to run from Will Ferrell and it's like this very funny slapsticky kind of visual gag and she ends up in this very sweet warm like kitchen area Mm -hmm. I looked at her and I saw she had blue on and statement pearls and I was like oh my god Rhea Perlman is Ruth Handler the inventor of Barbie I'm gonna lose my mind and I was like (laughs) getting really choked up because you know this is this is kind of like God speaking to, you know, the creation. And Greta Gerwig said in an interview, I don't remember who it was with, but that they intentionally had the two of them sharing a cup of tea and touching hands the same way that it is with God and Adam on the top of the Sistine Chapel. Oh, wow. They really were playing with like the God and creator metaphors. And then towards the end of the film, it's less God creator and more mother daughter because Barbie is named after Ruth Handler's real daughter Barbara who is still alive Mm -hmm. and it was just too much for me to watch the two of them together because you know I did the review I wrote 9,000 words of Barbie lore I know a lot of Barbie history and you know Ruth Handler just like sincerely changed my life and changed the life of a lot of young women and so to see her personified on screen and also personified honestly because they do joke about her getting in trouble with the irs yeah she, tax evasion and stuff because <laughs> she definitely did um i was like this like this to me is the proof positive that you need that this is not just your standard ip movie this is not like a cheap paycheck with mattel like this is somebody who really appreciates barbie and what she stands for and the history and like i could like those are the moments that speak to me the most are the ones where it just proves to me that Gerwig loves this world. Weird Barbie House is another one where (laughs) I was like cry laughing when I saw which Barbies they were. And I could tell based on the, you know, I saw it at a press screening, but based on the press around me, who knew what these dolls were and which ones didn't. Because the second I saw Skipper, uh, the growing up Skipper, I was like, oh my God, they're going to make this girl's boobs grow. And <laughs> I was laughing before the punchline hit and everyone's looking at me like I'm crazy. And then the boobs grow and everyone's like, oh, oh what is that cursed thing? <laughs> it's like, yeah, welcome to the <laughs> the missteps of Barbie. But hey, if, if Mattel's been around for 60 years, 60 years Barbie's running for 60 years and they only have like less than 10 living in the weird house I think that's fine I think we're yeah. good <laughs> well yeah speaking of Barbie lore you mentioned BJ you wrote this 9,000 word article that is just incredible and I'm gonna put a link to that in the show notes and I, I feel like I read it before I saw the movie and I felt like it enhanced my experience but I also think you can read it after and and understand a little bit more of like Oh yeah, these are real things. These 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 are like incredible deep cuts that uh, Ger- Gerwig and and Noah Baumbach, who co-wrote the script with her, are drawing on here. So um, I, I definitely feel like your piece is like a perfect uh, companion to the experience of actually watching this movie. So um, people should definitely check that out. And and you mentioned um, that that the real Barbie, the um, Ruth Handler's daughter, is still alive. I was wondering if that was her on the bench in that moment when. Barbie says, you're so beautiful. And she says, I know it. I was like, this seems like it's somebody and I don't know who it is, but 
So the woman on the bench is Anne Roth. She is a costume designer. She is a, a friend of Greta Gerwig. She's worked on Gerwig and Bombbox movies before. Um, she's actually an Oscar-winning costume designer. Yeah, her um, name sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, she recently did the costumes for White Noise last year, which is, like, a phenomenal, like, costume because it's a period piece. Um, so that's that's who's on the bench. So it's an Oscar-winning costume designer who cool. just happens to work with them, which I really like. And I think that, to me that kind of speaks to the history of Barbie as also like a fashion doll. Cause like every designer that you can think of off the top of your head, they have done something with Barbie at some point, either designing clothes for like a specialty doll or having lines inspired by her. So having like a costume designer um, be on the bench with her, just, it just feels thematically appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know you're a big fan of, uh, of dance BJ and the dancing mm-hmm. sequences in this movie were, were pretty mind blowing. I loved that stuff. What did you, what did you make of the, the dancing? In the oh, film? I loved them. It's like the dancing in this is so much fun. And I like that they feel like they're playing with different genres of dance. Like the Barbie dances are very, very like poppy and they feel very modern. Um, they remind me a lot of the dances that you see in like teen movies at proms. Like she's all that is the one that came to mind first. Uh, But then they also are channeling a lot of these like golden age musicals, which is really fascinating, just big choreographed numbers. So they're incorporating like a very old school style of dance with a very modern style of dance. And then you have the Ken numbers, which again, like you have these big, beautiful, like moving pieces where they're making, you know, designs on the ground. If you look at them from a bird's eye, that is very like, you know, shot on a soundstage musical, Mm -hmm. which I love, but at the same time feels like a Backstreet Boys video. So it feels (laughs) like it's channeling some of like that newer, poppier style of dance. Like this whole movie just feels like fusion to me of Gerwig taking a lot of different elements and fusing them together and making just magic out of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The uh, I think one of my favorite moments of this movie is the deprogramming uh, montage where oh my god um, that, that entire <laughs> scene where like basically she uses uh, the Godfather in a really brilliant way where like the character <laughs> says like almost off screen I think like do you want me to turn it off and so you can like restart it so you can talk all the way through it like there's just so many uh, elbows being thrown left and right at like film bros and like I I mean you know there's that moment with uh, <laughs> with Matchbox Twenty like the Matchbox Twenty song where oh I was um, losing it <laughs> where Gosling is like can I play the guitar at you and then like yes. there's like a four hour <laughs> four hours later kind of thing and they're still all playing the same song um which yeah I feel um targeted personally targeted by that uh so um yeah th- there's there's so many like great moments in that that uh deprogramming scene in particular where it's just sort of uh all of these ways to sort of poke fun at um you know the the patriarchal uh takeover that that the Kens have um have sort of uh, <laughs> uh, applied to the Barbie land area so um yeah were there and any I, like highlights from that sequence that that jumped out at you BJ the Godfather one really really got me especially because when you have someone like Issa Rae as well who I feel like of the like the non-Margot Robbie Barbies just like the the collective Barbies she nails it her and Hari Neff really really nailed it for me of kind of that like okay like energy to everything um so hearing her talk uh towards them like I don't know can you explain that to me Mm -hmm. I was like oh my god this is psychological warfare this is so funny um but that entire montage really really works for me because it really highlights 
how absurd gender roles are in society, like how cartoonishly stupid they are. Because once you take out kind of like the systemic like problems that exist in the real world and you just look at it at surface level, it is the goofiest thing in the entire world of like mini fridges filled with beer and foosball tables and it just looks like a frat boy nightmare but it doesn't feel dangerous at any moment yeah and then you have like with with like the girls at the same time where they're just being you know like the the enthusiastically sexy submissive servants to mm-hmm. like the dressed men. as like, french maids and things yes. yeah <laughs> where it very much feels like Greta Gerwig is like putting a giant neon sign is like do you see how dumb this is like do you see how silly that this looks and that really spoke to me and then yeah that Matchbox 20 song like Greta Gerwig always knows like the music cue to hit for a perfect moment um I have been obsessed with her choices in music um since I read her letter to Justin Timberlake asking to get the permission to use sexy back for Ladybird to be like <laughs> no this is the song that completely captures like that type of confidence you can only have when you're like an 18 year old boy mm-hmm. and she's so right so when she has this song where it's like this was a huge hit people loved this song and it is fully a guy singing I want to push you down yeah and we were just all cool with that and singing with it on the radio like it's brilliant such a good choice yeah um i i understand why there has to be so much uh i guess you would call him like evil kin in this movie like from a, a narrative perspective but I, I personally wanted to see a little bit more of like the normal version of that character just because the the evil version i guess was being such a dick to barbie so and it just wasn't it wasn't quite as funny to me as the Ken in his normal state or like the Ken learning about the patriarchy and all of that. Um, so I, I guess like I, that's one, I guess, quibble that I would have. I have, I have two other quibbles in this movie that I, I loved um, that I wanted to bring up to you and see if, uh, cause I know you loved it as well. I think you gave it like a nine out of 10 or something like that. that yeah. I gave is, it a nine out of 10, which was, I was, <laughs> I was like looking at some of our other reviews and I was like, am I just going to look like the biggest weirdo? And then somebody, I don't remember what it was, but Chris had given something a nine out of 10 relatively like, recent and i was like yeah. okay i'm i'm okay <laughs> yeah yeah oh no you're good and i i think that's the the accurate uh uh ranking or um whatever review number or whatever you want to call it that that's probably what i would give it as well um and i think history is going to bear that out i think people are going to be looking back on this movie really really fondly because of, i think so too uh how incredibly it walks all those tight ropes that we were talking about but um yeah the the quibbles that i wanted to bring up with you where I, I thought that the um mattel executives led by will ferrell who was really great in this movie uh were used pretty wonderfully in the real world and then when they rollerblade into barbie land it kind of feels like they disappear for a while and then they like pop out after the emotional catharsis of of Barbie and Ken. And it's not that I wanted the movie to be more about those executives because there's some minor characters in the grand scheme of things, but it kind of feels like in the final cut of this movie, it feels a little odd that they were there at the very end for not that great of a payoff. So um, I don't know if that's something that was just like a, uh, you know, in a different version of the script, they, they were more involved in Barbie land at the end and then they, trimmed it down to for pacing reasons or whatever the case may be uh but i was curious what you thought about just like that entire subplot of the mattel executives and and will ferrell as their uh their leader there i have two thoughts about it the first one is that i love that they're poking fun at the fact that mattel is currently run by men um mattel ceos they have historically been women there have been two women that have been uh ceos of mattel and like really pushed barbie you know to the moon in popularity and but right now the CEO is a man. And I think that's a really fun kind of in joke to poke at. Um, 
but I honestly, I kind of could have done without them ever getting to Barbie land. I don't think that they needed to be there. Yeah. Uh, and part of me thinks that maybe this is one of like the Mattel notes that Gerwig got because they are producers on this as well. So she not only has to factor in studio notes from Warner Brothers, but also from Mattel, who are, you know, very traditionally protective of their brand, especially Barbie. Mm-hmm. So I would not be surprised if that was like this. We're just seeing the results of a compromise. So I was just kind of like, okay, whatever. And they even say throughout the movie a few times, like, don't think too deep about it because it's kind of operating under children's imagination logic. So I was like, okay, I guess they're still here. Who cares? And I just like, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually did love that, that logic level that this movie was operating on because like um, America Ferrera's character uh, works for Barbie and like, you know, gets a chance to go into Barbie land and that doesn't really seem too phased by it. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that's just kind of the reality in which this movie sits, you know, it's, it's not like she's freaking out and like going, Oh my God, my life is irrevocably changed because I've been to this distant place that shouldn't exist, but does and all of that. Like the, the movie isn't bogged down by the mythology. It just sort of like, you know, um, exists as like a, a stated fact almost. And it, it's just kind of like very matter of fact in how this stuff happens. And like, it's not overly concerned with how you get to Barbie land. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, you're just rollerblading along Venice beach and then things just show up and you just kind of skate past them and then mm-hmm. you're there. And like the, you know, I think a, a lesser movie would have spent more time trying to explain away some of that stuff or, or, Oh, yeah, they try to logic it all. And it's so nice that they don't. And especially because it's established so early that this is operating under like kid logic where she just wakes up and there's no stairs. You just take the Barbie from the top floor to the bottom floor because that's how you play with the Barbie. So it's like, you know what? Screw it. Like, we're just going to keep it rolling. (laughs) Commit to the bit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So uh, America Ferreira, I thought she was tremendous. The only other, um, I guess, quibble that I had with this is I felt like her daughter, uh, Ariana Greenblatt's character, uh, Sasha, kind mm-hmm. of felt like she didn't have m- much to do as the perspective shifted to America Ferreira's character. Like, Sasha has that big moment where she tells Barbie, uh, she tells Margot Robbie's character, like, you know, what uh, Barbie represents in the culture today to some people. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, that's where uh, Margot Robbie breaks down for the first time. Um but it kind of felt like Sasha as a character became a bit of an afterthought. And and again, I appreciated like America Ferrer's character being foregrounded there. And like, you know, she has more experience and and um, her, the way that she views the world and then like relays those views to the rest of the Barbies and uh, all of that like leads to the deprogramming scene and, and sort of helps uh, pave the way for the emotional catharsis of the movie. Um, so I, I loved all of that, but it just kind of felt like Sasha became, she seemed like the thing, like a, like a big deal in the beginning of the movie. And then she kind of just got sidelined a little bit. So I was slightly bummed to see that. But um, again, she's like, there, there are so many, this is the, the grading on a curve thing, right? Like she has mm-hmm. so many things to do that it's like, I'm, I'm very grateful that this movie exists at all, uh, especially in this form. But um but yeah, in like a maybe a perfect world or something, that that character arc might have been a little bit more um, fleshed out or something. So uh, I weirdly, I, I weirdly actually prefer that it pivots away from her because I think it's expected. It's anticipated that oh, this is a movie about Barbie, so this is very clearly going to be about like a child. Um, and I think that a lot of people, this is you know not a universal experience. This is just a common experience that when you get to a certain age as as a person who socializes as a woman in this culture 
you get to a certain age and it is almost a prerequisite that you have to get rid of your Barbies in order to move forward, that that is something for childhood, that's something that you have to leave behind. And in a lot of cases, that is something that you have to resent um, because once you start learning these like gender theories or learning about the patriarchy or learning about whatever, a very natural response to that is people become very like anti-Barbie and anti-femme and anti-anything that is, you know, quote unquote girly because it's seen as weaker than, it's seen Mm -hmm. as lesser than. And so it makes sense to me that she is going to be very, very aggressive. But the reason I like the pivot to America Ferreira's character being kind of more of the, the centerpiece in this is because it is it usually does happen in like your 30s, if not older, when you start to recontextualize what a lot of those experiences were like. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot on on the website about, you know, the idea of like heal, healing your inner child or healing generational trauma. That also includes like your teenage self. And part of healing that inner teenager that you have is coming to terms with how mean teenage self was to child self. Mm-hmm. And so watching America Ferrer kind of go do that, it makes a lot of sense to me because the the character of Sasha, she's just not going to be there yet to be able to have these sort of like big brain moments that America Ferrer has. Like she just fundamentally isn't there yet. She's too young. Right. Um, I wish there was like a little bit more in terms of like, I feel like her pivot from being like, F Barbie, I don't like this, to then suddenly being like, but mom, we have to help her. Like, that seemed yeah. a little sudden for me. But otherwise, like, I think that it was a really nice surprise that we get the reveal that, no, 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 like, Margot Robbie's Barbie is America Ferreira's Barbie. And, like, that is what's affecting her. I think that that's, that really spoke to me as somebody who is continuing to navigate my own relationship with Barbie and, like, trying to apologize to, you know, the parts of me that did fall into the, like, I'm 15 now. I don't like Barbie anymore. And mm-hmm. now I'm in my 30s and I'm like rebuilding my collection all over again. <laughs> um, okay. I think that's, I mean, that's most of the stuff that that I had written down here. Um, again, th- I mean, I feel like we could probably spend another hour just like going beat by beat through this movie because there's so much here and there's so many great jokes in it. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I just want to encourage everybody. I mean, obviously we've been talking about it in full spoilers this whole time. So I encourage people to see the movie and, and, uh, <laughs> even if you've listened to us all the way through and haven't seen it yet like please go see this film because it's it's really there's so special. much more we haven't even touched on because you you kind of can't like you yeah. have to see it um were, were there any other like uh i guess big takeaways or um or like uh even just like smaller moments or or um, supporting performances or anything like that that you wanted to shout out here bj before we wrap it up I mean, yeah, Hari Neff was a big deal for me. I thought she was really, really funny. I like that people are getting to see what a talented actress she is. And there is a little part of me that is absolutely delighted that one of the Barbies is a trans woman. And a lot of people don't know that about Hari Neff. And I think that that just speaks to the intentional casting that Greta Gerwig did, especially because at one point there was going to be like scheduling issues and Hari Neff wrote Greta and was like, please, for the love of God, please figure out how to make this work for me. Mm -hmm. And they did. They like, they changed shooting schedules to make sure that she would be in this movie. And to me, that is just we need more filmmakers that do stuff like that because that representation is so important and it is so groundbreaking because, you know, we have all these idiots that are always like, well, what is a real woman? And it's like, well, you all know that Barbie is a woman and she doesn't have genitals. So like (laughs) chill out. And 
uh, it just makes me so happy. And God, she's funny. <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, speaking of the generals thing, like the gynecologist line at the very end. I mean, it's oh like my God, so I lost perfect. my mind. Like, it's what so a funny. great way to end this thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I want to shout out like also uh, <laughs> Simu Liu and Kingsley Benadir in particular as like some of the other Kens I thought were really uh, entertaining in very small roles. And then <laughs> Michael Sarah as Alan. Uh, oh, what a delight he is. <laughs> yeah. Just, just like perfectly utilized like sprinkled in there just enough where you don't really get sick of him and he doesn't overstay his welcome it's just a yeah a perfect addition to uh to this group, I've, so. I've missed michael sarah so much i hope that this leads to more michael sarah but i also know that he notoriously hates fame so only you know on his terms come yeah. back on your own terms michael but we've yeah. missed you <laughs> yeah you mentioned in your review that you hope that once the strikes are over this leads to a sarah sans so um yeah oh, hopefully i would love it hopefully that happens <laughs> I would love that. Um, okay, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna link to Barbie's uh, or to, to Barbie's. I'm gonna link to BJ's review of Barbie here in in the show notes, as well as uh, the her, her the only guide to Barbie lore that you will ever need, which is really um, a, a very accurate headline for that particular <laughs> piece. Uh, so I encourage people to go read those as well. And I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about Oppenheimer and Barbie at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The Slash Film Show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week.